0: I'll call and ask for donations and ask uh, and write grants. And after we receive them, I'll um, invite them out. And they're like, oh, wow. And then they want to bring more people out. So it's been really good. And every time we release the fish down at the lake, or uh, especially the big fish, it's starting to draw a rather large crowd of people.
1: Welcome to RAS Talk the podcast on recirculating aquaculture systems and sustainable food production. Brought to you by RAS Magazine, the premier publication for recirculating aquaculture systems professionals. This episode is sponsored by OxyGuard International. Secure, grow, evolve. Improve your production with tailored and targeted technology. Welcome back to the first episode of 2023. My name is Jean Coden and I'm the editor of Hatchery International and Rath Tech Magazine. With me as always is my co-host Brian Vinci, the director of the Freshwater Institute. Happy New Year, Brian.
2: Happy New Year, Jean. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing great. How are you feeling about 2023 so far?
2: Uh, pretty good so far, uh, catching up to a, a bunch of things that uh, we're running late into 2022, um, and, but I think we're going to have a great outlook for the year. RAS Tech Conference is coming up, I think, in April in Orlando, and the Freshwater Institute's going to have a session there. We'll probably have six to eight of our folks talking about the latest in RAS research and the things that we're working on, so that's really exciting. Of course, there's the Aquaculture America meeting, in late February, we'll have uh, some of our folks there talking about precision aquaculture, fish health, and Atlantic salmon in um, RAS. So that's exciting. Um, and I think, you know, in terms of the year for the industry, I'm looking for um, seeing a few um, announcements. You know, I think in 2022, um, there was a little bit of a, a quiet on, the, on that front. We had a one or two being announced, maybe the HEMA project in Norway, but in the U.S. and Canada, I haven't heard about all too much. Um, I could be forgetting something. So I'm looking forward to you know seeing the industry continue to uh, tangibly take hold and uh, and move forward. What are you thinking about for 2023?
1: For 2023, I think I'm really reflecting on the sustainability aspect, not just for the RAS industry, but the aquaculture industry in general as you know, editor of Hatcher International and, and Rastech magazine. I think that's what I want to focus on in terms of content and really exploring more conversations about how do we make this industry more sustainable, not just environmentally wise, but, you know, future proofing and how do we move forward in a really productive and also profitable way. So I'm really interested in engaging more conversations about that this year.
2: Um, Yeah, very interesting um, to to be thinking about all those areas where we can improve as an industry, you know, not just uh, potentially um, having production on land that um, that has limited impacts on the natural environment.
1: Yeah, for sure. We'll we'll see what 2023 brings us. But without further ado, let's talk about today's episode.
2: Yeah. So today we're fortunate to be talking with Kevin Hoffman. He's a teacher at Onalaska High School. I've known Kevin, I guess, for almost 10 years now. He reminds me in the podcast. Um, when I met Kevin, he was working at a um, recirculating aquaculture facility in Rochester, Washington, that was um, initially American Gold and then school Seafoods and then eventually uh, Cook Aquaculture Uh, Kevin was there during the conversion of the facility to uh, recirculation aquaculture systems, so he was very well versed in the technology and then uh, moved on from that uh, position at the hatchery to end up at uh, Onalaska High School, developing a curriculum for training um, uh, students in um, uh, or using aquaculture and training students in aquaculture, um, but with a specific uh, focus on... um, on the cell-mounted species uh, of the Pacific Northwest and uh, and using water reuse because, you know, he only had a limited amount of water available to his facility there at the high school, to the facility there at the high school, not his facility. And um, he's really made the most of it. I, I've stayed in touch with Kevin uh, over the years and and helped him when he had questions about, you know, how to design this part of the system and, you know, what would be the best thing with the effluent to be reused and how big a biofilter needs to be and all those things. And, uh, he's, a um, a tremendously uh, generous person. And, um, he's really uh, built that program there at the Onalaska high school, um, into something that, uh, as well here in the podcast has grown from only, you know, 20 some students to, um, uh, double that. And, uh, and, uh, you know, in general, that program gets uh pretty good accolades and support from the from the community as useful uh, you, as you talk with them about so uh yeah i'm excited to uh for the listeners to hear
1: yeah and let's just give the people what they want shall we all right please please enjoy the Rath talk podcast with kevin hoffman so first things first kevin welcome to our podcast um we Thank you for taking the time to talk with us about your aquaculture program. Welcome.
0: Thank you. Yeah, no problem.
1: Let's start with an introduction about you and how long you've been the aquaculture instructor and program manager at Onalaska High School.
0: Yeah, so it started back in the fall of 2016 after or i guess before that i had spent 7 years working for cook aquaculture pacific in rochester when their hatchery got transitioned to a fully recirculating aquaculture system that was a time of just uh, expansion and growth and i really enjoyed it I really enjoyed the technology aspect of it the private production side of seeing what we could get away with was thriving and um, took another job for a Kootenai tribe over in North, northern Idaho, worked for the state for a little bit, and then ended up um, working for some uh, other employers. And a neighbor of mine said, hey, Kevin, I know a place where you could work with your own little hatchery, a wood shop, metal shop. I'm like, what's that? And he said, oh, at the high school. And I just kind of laughed and walked off. And a couple of days later, he said, Kevin, get my truck. I said, okay, and we went down to the high school, walked around, saw the hatchery, and they hired me. Um, So that uh, was kind of the beginning of how I came to be here. And just kind of seeing that hatchery, um, it was just a very simple flow through uh, setup. And when the principal at the school called for a reference check on uh, my past employment, Uh, Doug Sims of Cook Aquaculture said, you know what, Kevin's going to probably want to turn the whole hatchery into reuse. Just let him, just let him, don't question him, just let him go for it. Uh, So that's kind of how that all got started. Um, So it's been about seven years now, and we've kind of re-transformed that whole program into reuse. We've increased production and really developed a lot of partners and community buy-in.
2: Kevin, this is Brian Vinci. Um, uh, welcome again to the podcast. It's great to have you on. And I can't remember when you and I first connected. Um, and I have been to the Rochester facility you're describing. I, I always thought it was Icicle Seafoods. Is, um, is that incorrect?
0: Uh, you are correct. It was, when I started, it was American Gold Seafoods. American. And then Icicle Seafoods. And then it was purchased by Cook Aquaculture. And the first time we met was at the short course in Wenatchee around 2013, 14, 15, sometime around in there. And uh, remember specifically coming up and asking you, how did you get the water from the counter current degasser to stop and pool up before it would go into the LHO underneath it? Uh, I see. I see. So you're a... Uh... You're a short course
2: alumni. Um, that's great. You know, that facility at Rochester, I recall that it was a recirculating system for Smolt. Uh, yes. was, was that designed by uh, Akva or is that incorrect?
0: Norwegian company. Yeah. Arnie Back, Backguard. Hmm. It might've been Akva. I don't, I don't recall.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Th- there was a, there's actually a sister facility in Rochester that, Um, as you well know, and and for our listeners, is uh, now the Riverance facility there. Um, They both take advantage of the wonderful well water that's um, available in that area for uh, water reuse and water recirculation. So um, yeah, very cool.
1: So Kevin, you mentioned that when you first came on to the program, there was already a hatchery flow through system there. So did the program? already was already existent when you came on
0: yeah so the best i can dig around and find is it kind of started up in the early 1990s uh, by the community there wasn't even a class there was an ffa class and a couple of locals had a, a private fish farm that kind of shut down just a few miles from school so they started raising fish there and releasing them in the new river And then the state offered to put some net pins into Carlisle Lake, which is a former mill pond, which is only a half mile away from the school. Um, So, of course, with net pins, that's when the adult trapping had to start for their policy. Uh, Then a few years later, maybe in the late 90s, early 2000s, we received um, the opportunity to take the entire water supply for the city of Onalaska, the original water supply for the city was a artesian spring right out of the hillside that would deliver between 60 and 120 gallons a minute, depending on the season, of almost perfect water, ranging from 46 to 54 degrees, a DO of eight, and almost nothing else in it. And that's why they used it for the original drinking water. But with current uh, Department of Ecology criteria, they had to decommission that and drill wells. So they offered to relinquish their water rights and give them to the school. And we changed it over to fish propagation to where now we have almost, um, paperwork's almost done, the the sole rights for that spring. And that's what powers basically the whole operation on campus. Uh, We have two buildings that are roughly 20 by 70, where we grow upwards of 7,000 pounds of fish on that 60 to 100, 120 gallons a minute. Um, I'd say within the last 10 years is when it's been primarily ran by the school and not entirely community-driven by specific community volunteers and coordinators.
1: Wow, okay. That's super fascinating. Um, I'll let Ryan kind of take over a little bit later um, to get into the nitty-gritty of the technical stuff, because I'm sure you guys are going to have a great conversation about that. Um, But I wanted to ask you first about the details of the curriculum and how it kind of gets folded into the school education program.
0: Well, as a career and technical education instructor, I start off my day with uh, seven different classes. Start off with wood shop, metal shop, natural resources, automotive, lunch, and then I transition to the last two classes of the day, which are my aquaculture classes. And they are governed by a set of frameworks, which include all our learning standards, state approved, And the students have the opportunity throughout these frameworks to earn a current technical education credit, a math credit, or a science credit. Um, The curriculum focuses on all the elements of basically the natural resources and fisheries, from fish health, biosecurity, identification, all the math math involved with sample weights and growth rates and temperature units. terminology, reproductive, feeding and rearing kind of touches on everything that a entry-level fish culturist would um, would be exposed to. Um, my approach here is all front-loading. I take him right out to the hatchery and teach him the basics, the hands-on fish husbandry. If you don't have good water and a good clean tank, nothing's going to go well. Uh, so the students learn the basics of cleaning, feeding, calculating the sample weights, Um, they'll take CVs, they'll monitor the pumps and the oxygen levels and the CO2. And then that's just the hatchery setting. We'll have students with my assistant going down to the net pens to recycle and process all the returning adults during the fall and winter. And then in the winter to spring, we'll have three separate net pens of co-host steelhead and rainbow trout. And we'll be managing those net pins along with moving fish around from hatcheries to our hatchery, to the net pins, releasing the net pins and all these operations that take a lot of coordination, uh, teamwork from the students. So students are having work with students that they may not necessarily get along with, but we have a task to do as in any employment setting. Sometimes you don't get to pick who you work with but you're set to work with someone and you got to get your job done. So the students are really learning that um, work ethic, motivation, um, kind of that, that mentality that we don't care if it's raining, we don't care if it's 20 degrees out. These fish need fed, they need taken care of, we got to get our job done. And I'd say 90% of the students buy into it and you, know, you always have your 10% that complain, but generally it's... Um, the class is growing. My first year, I started off with 24 kids over the two classes, and now I'm at 56 between the two classes. Uh, so they're, they're very full, they're very heavy. Uh, other things that we focus on in the curriculum is the basics of uh, hatchery maintenance. Um, when we reconstructed those buildings, which we'll get into later on with Brian, we had students uh, doing electrical, carpentry, concrete work, a lot of plumbing, um, helping with some of the design. And of course, all the freshmen, we made did dig uh, ditches for the uh, plumbing and electrical. Um, so just a huge variety, since we manage and take care of everything ourselves from things that I mentioned to even taking out the trash, we, we do 100% of everything. So within all of that is that curriculum, embedded curriculum terminology and just kind of everything else that goes along with operating a hatchery.
2: Kevin, that's amazing. You've grown the uh, number of students from, you know, 20 to 50 or more. Can you give us an estimate about how many students you've actually run through the program over your tenure there at Onalaska?
0: What do we go about 56 this year? This is my seventh year. So let's say, uh, say 280.
2: That's quite a few students who are getting trained in that program, which sounds excellent. And I'll yeah. note that uh, at the Freshwater Institute, we are involved in two programs and grants that are looking to develop curriculum for getting folks, high school students, um, and even earlier interested in aquaculture and specifically interested in water reuse and recirculating aquaculture systems. With the hopes of uh, developing an interested workforce and providing them with training and skills so that when they graduate from high school or go on to further study in this kind of area aquaculture and recirculation aquaculture um, that they will be able to have um, opportunities in the industry because the industry is growing um, you know we've talked on this podcast a lot about large companies like um, Atlantic Sapphire and Nordic Aqua Farms and, um, uh, and additional uh, uh, companies building large facilities for raising fish on land. Uh, but we've also heard about how hard it can be to, to uh, recruit and um, build a team of skilled operators. And uh, it sounds like at Onalaska, Kevin, you're you're already started on, on this and, and have seven years behind you in, in developing a curriculum and a and a method for uh, for training students. So I, I need to connect you with some folks who might be really interested in um, in what you've built there because other folks are trying to do this in other parts of the country, including uh, Maine, and, and actually in uh, our other project is in Norway, who are also building um, essentially continuing education programs and certificate-based programs for um, RAS operators and the like. So uh, So kudos to you for that. let's talk a little bit about um what you had when you came you said flow through and a few tanks and i i'm a little familiar with um your upgrades but not entirely so if you wouldn't mind telling us and the listeners um how you're raising the seven pounds seven thousand pounds of uh of fish there in the hatchery and and what systems and, and and what you have
0: well i'll do my best to be clear and concise by nature it's uh It's kind of messy. Uh, So it all starts off with a water supply. And right now, currently, we only have about 60 gallons per minute. So this 60 gallons per minute comes into our first hatchery building. It comes into two 18 foot circular tanks that we have set up for partial reuse. Uh, We'll reuse about 86% of the water with pumps on the side taken through a side box and a couple degassers. We did try a more efficient degasser and a LHO, but we found with our high rate of reuse and students taking care of things, uh, cleanliness and flock was an issue and it would plug up the degassers and LHO. So we ripped all of those out and put in just very uh, simple 12 inch pipes that we got donated from Reverence and still achieved basically the same outcome, but very, very simple and no risk of plugging up. Uh, That's one thing at the high school here, we do not have any alarm systems. We just got a backup generator. And when I'm gone or on vacation, we have very limited staff that can come and respond to this. Um, Basically, I have a call list that includes all the local state employees Um, from the local hatcheries, if there's emergency and I'm unavailable, they know our system, they understand fish, and they are able to respond um, by having their own set of keys to get in and take care of any issue that may be be addressed. Um, So those first two tanks I talked about, the 18-foot circulars, is where we will grow our steelhead from eggs until smolts. Uh, We'll grow them up to about 20, some to the pound, and we'll have about 1400 pounds in each tank. So almost 3000 pounds in that hatchery. That water will then go through a very undersized uh, radial flow clarifier. And then through a disc micron filter, take it down to 40 microns. And then we'll go through a moving bed biological filter. All that material was donated from Cook Aquaculture, the old um, micron disc filter, the settling basin, and the biomedia. Um, I just happened to know what was in their boneyard since I worked there. So that was (laughs) kind of a win-win. So we got that put together. So that system basically removes all the suspended solids and treats all the ammonia down to virtually nothing And then all that water is gravity fed to our other hatchery about hundred feet away that water is then pumped vertically and will be distributed between three 12 foot tanks, which has about a 84% reuse. And that's where we will raise our rainbow trout. We will raise 600 rainbow trout up to about five pounds each. So each tank will have about 13 gallons of fresh makeup water. Did you say five pounds each? Five pounds each. Okay. Yep. 600 five pound fish over those three separate tanks. So each tank will have about 13 gallons of fresh water coming in. And that'll grow about a thousand pounds of biomass with the reuse, partial reuse on each, each tank. Um, and that's in all of that's in addition to a couple small tanks, our ponding tanks and fry tanks that are just complete flow through, um, but just very low volumes. Right. So, are, the, yep.
2: Are you using pure oxygen in any of these partial
0: reuse systems? No. Okay. We have it hooked up. Uh, Ryan Karcher from where's he at now? Integrated Aqua integrated aquaculture uh, systems yeah yes yeah. he got us hooked up with this nifty little device to where if we lose flow or power oxygen automatically turns on so we have that plumbed into every single tank so if a pump fails or or uh power shuts off oxygen is automatically deployed to each tank to keep them alive for up to about three or four days
2: so you're not using pure oxygen in the, in the water reuse system, but you have pure oxygen on site in the case of an emergency. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And and uh, how about, how about feeders and feed? So, you know, the, of course you're teaching the students, the basic husbandry operation and maintenance and uh, feeding fish and, and land-based uh, research is, uh, mm-hmm. and reuse is super important. Um, how are you feeding the fish and how are the students doing that?
0: Okay, so depends on the time of the year. Um, but when our steelhead are in the tanks, we will have a, just a simple little belt feeder hooked up, uh, kicking out feed, but we'll also hand feed them as much as we can every day to get good growth on the fish before they go in, um, into the lake, which is cold. Uh, so it's hard to get growth on them. So we'll use the belt feeder and we'll uh, hand feed Uh, So the students learn the art of hand feeding when the tanks are only three feet deep. And with steelhead, uh, the state says steelhead are some of the hardest fish to raise because once that feed passes that vertical plane in front of them or that horizontal plane, they really don't dive down to eat it like trout do. Even though supposedly they're the same scientific name, they Mm -hmm. behave totally differently, which no one can explain, at least not yet that I've heard. So they really learned the art of that from, you know, the first student, I'll say, Hey, go feed this bucket of fit or feed to the fish. They'll walk up there and just dump the bucket right in the water. And, uh, well then they get to experience, um, the tank with, with waders in a broom. Yeah. <laughs> um, so they, uh, they learn very quickly to feed very sparingly, but feed enough to ensure that all the fish are getting equal opportunity and maintaining a very tight CV. Uh, that's one thing that was stressed at the private company I worked at. Um, it all comes down to feeding. You feed well, you're going to have good quality fish. You have the right velocity. You're not going to have fin nipping. And we've produced uh, some of the best smolts that uh, our state uh, hatchery director has ever seen. Excellent. Um, so they're, they're turning out really good, but also heard that steelhead are very, very similar to Atlantic salmon and rearing. So I kind of have a, an upper hand on that because that's what I raised at cook aquaculture. Yeah.
2: Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. So what other, besides feeding, what other um, activities are you working with the students in terms of the systems? Are they uh, changing up pumps or cleaning pack columns, as you mentioned? So what other uh, maintenance and operation uh, activities are they involved in?
0: Right now, all the construction is, is pretty much done. So They'll come in, they'll feed. They'll, of course, clean up all their mess. I, I teach them the importance of, of hygiene and use your guys' uh, PowerPoint presentation on the biosecurity mm-hmm. and how cleanliness is is so important to the, to the hygiene and health of a hatchery. And um, picking up any fish that jump out. We've had cat issues. We've had mice issues. So they see that and they understand the importance of just really maintaining the, um, the cleanliness of the facility. Uh, they will also take dissolved oxygen readings on a regular basis, uh, kind of I'll train in a student, and then they'll train another student, and then they'll train another student and just kind of works its way around. Um, other students will work on cleaning the, the flock that grows on the side of the tanks in the bottom. Other uh, students will work on feeding, sample weights, Um, checking the growth to make sure we are where we are supposed to be, making sure that our feed rate is still accurate where we're supposed to be, seeing when we change feed sizes, telling me how much feed we have left before we're going to run out, and I'll need to let the state know to get some more. Uh, A lot of times, they will just bring in the hose and hose things down, clean out the side boxes, uh, check the oxygen bottles, Um, just kind of look for anything that's that's changed or abnormal. I'll teach them about calling, and um, some of those different stressors. We don't need to be loud. We don't need to kick the tank. Uh, we need to look for the weak and the pathetic fish and, and call them, get them out of there, kill them. They're non-performers. They're never going to measure up and we don't want to invest any more money in them. Some of them think it's kind of cruel, <laughs> but uh, but that's, you know, I believe the best fish culture. You don't want to have a a weak lethargic fish in there that may be carrying a disease yeah we also have a warm water display tank we we threw together a thousand gallon tank um that has sturgeon burbot walleye largemouth bass all of that with a sand filter uv light everything permitted through the state um, got them from everywhere and uh, a lot of times uh, some students will just kind of sit there and study the feeding behaviors of those fish how they feed at 50 degrees versus 56 degrees Um, We used to go warmer, but we found out that our burbot won't survive uh, much past about 55, 56. So yeah, just continual learning as they're observing the fish and um, taking notes of what's changing, what's happening, and uh, and noticing what happens when their oxygen gets low, that the feeding stops. They start congregating around the center where the velocities, or at least that ring where the velocity is a little less, and just really teaching them to to read the fish and understand that that feeding is, is really key to being a great fish culturist. Yeah, that's a, a
2: really comprehensive and great set of uh, activities that the students are involved in and learning. Uh, all of those things are important for aquaculture in general, of course, and, and specifically some of those uh, for land-based recirculation systems. and And that's wonderful that, you know, those students are picking up those skills, that knowledge, um, you know, getting that experience there at the Otahuasca high school program. Um, What's that's, 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 uh, that's really excellent, Kevin. Let's talk a little bit about where the, the fish are going. So the, the 605 pound, those are quite large rainbows in the steelhead at 20 fish per pound in the first building, where are all those fish going? What's their, you know, final destination and and, uh, impact outcome?
0: Yeah. So our local mill pond, Carlisle Lake, flows into a very small creek called Gear Creek for about a mile, which goes into the Nwaka River, then the Chehalis River, Grace Harbor, and the ocean. And it's been reported that our coho salmon have been tracked from California all the way up to Alaska. Um, So what happens is our steelhead start off as eggs in the hatchery, are reared in the hatchery until about December when they're about 20 fish to the pound and then we move them out to the net pins. They go on a 20 by 20 net pin, and they'll stay there until April 1st when they're released at five fish to the pound. The net pin right next to it will receive 100,000 coho from the Chuck hatchery, uh, 50,000 early, 50,000 late. We'll rear those from about size 25 to the pound to 17 to the pound, and then release those April 1st as well. And then we'll receive in the third net pin we'll receive 10,000 rainbow trout from the Mossy Rock Hatchery. Now these are catchable size rainbow trout, but before we put the 10,000 catchable size in the net pin to raise them for another few months to get growth, we'll take about 1,500 of them to the hatchery and put them in the hatchery because the steelhead have already been transferred out. We'll raise those 1,500 for about two months, feeding them as much as we can, and we'll go through them individually one by one with the students and take all our average weights and lengths. We'll then do all the math, create the chart and the bell-shaped curve, and we'll determine what size are the top 600 performers. Then we'll go through them all again one by one and take the top 600 largest fish out of 15, and that becomes our selected fish that we will rear for an additional year to release five pounders the following year. Those five pounders will come directly out of the hatchery. They'll be transported by the Department of Fish and Wildlife down to the lake for the opener. So on the opener, this 26 acre lake, which has access around the entire lake from the natural resource class and aquaculture class, we've we've bid all back with brush hogs and weed eaters, and mowers. So we have complete access all the way around for fishermen. So on that opening day, we'll have about 9,000 catchables being released at about half a pound each, and we'll have 600 of those five-pounders going in. I'm pushing the five-pounders. They're going to be maybe six or seven pounds this year. Cook Aquaculture has agreed to provide 4,000 pounds of their RC, Nutri-Supreme feed, for these rainbow trout. The state will not provide the, the feed for that as it's really not in their scope of work or, or in their goals, but cooks saw a great opportunity. And I tell you what, that RC Nutri Supreme is, is amazing compared to the standard feed keeps the water cleaning and it has 80, is it percent or milligrams per liter of the Astra in it?
2: Uh, so. Parts per million, I think just the milligrams.
0: Yeah. Okay. So. When these fish come out after a year of eating this, they are, they are just gorgeous. Um, all their fins are hundred percent intact and the meat is just as red as you'd ever see it. Redder than most all the, the meat in the stores that you'd see. It's, it's amazing. We're getting people coming down all the way from Tacoma and Seattle, which is about a two hour drive to fish this little tiny mill pond for these fish. <clears throat> um, I'm going to jump back to the steelhead. So historically, we would only release about 5,000 steelhead due to constraints at the hatchery. So after um, increasing production at the hatchery, we did not have enough feed and resources to provide for all 35,000 smolts. And that's where the Chehalis tribe stepped in. Uh, The Confederated Tribes of the Chehalis Reservation is has committed to pay almost $4,000 a year in feed to provide additional funding to make sure that we release all 35,000 smolts, um, steelhead smolts every year. So that's, um, they've they've just been great at doing that. The Shailish Tribe is also active in helping us uh, release all those coho salmon and rainbow trout or I'm um, sorry, steelhead, they'll bring out their boats, they'll bring out their, uh, their employees and help us move stuff around. They'll help us work the adult trap when we get behind. Um, they'll send out a crew and process through all the fish. And they generally just show up at my classroom every January with a, a check for about $10,000 to help support the aquaculture program in any way I see it needed supported. So they've just uh, been really great to work with and and very supportive. They've noted that they really appreciate this because every single smolt that we release, when it comes back, um, it'll swim through miles of the Shailes River, which goes right through the reservation. So it's very significant for their cultural fisheries, their fisheries. Um, uh, commercial fisheries and their other activities there on the reservation, a very important part of their uh, their history there.
1: Yeah, that's the part that really fascinated me about your story of the aquaculture program is that, you know, community involvement and community engagement piece of the program. When I was doing my research for this interview, I came across a great article about how the community got together for the releasing of the fish last April. I believe it was at Carlisle Lake. Yes. Um, and for our listeners, I'll share a link and some other extras on our website if you guys want to l- learn more about that. But uh, yeah, can you tell me a little bit more about the importance of having that community involvement and engagement aspect as part of the program outside of the school?
0: Yeah, it's it's really fun. I I kind of enjoy it. I don't mind doing cold calls, so I'll call and I'll ask the state for resources. I'll call and ask Cook and Riverence, Transalta, which is a local um, company, and a uh, Warehouser and other companies, local tour areas. Um, I'll call and ask for donations and, ask, uh, and write grants, and after we receive them, I'll um, invite them out, and they're like, oh, wow, and then they want to bring more people out. Uh, So it's been really good. And every time we release the fish down the lake, or uh, especially the big fish, it's starting to draw a rather large crowd of people. And for us, a large crowd is about 30 or 40 people standing on the bank watching the big fish just fall into the water. So that really, really encourages a lot of community support. Um, Since we've been doing all this, I've had Probably five or six people offer to volunteer to just come out and feed the fish on the net pins every day, which is amazing because sometimes I just can't get to it. With all the other classes I teach and other responsibilities, um, sometimes there's just not time. And it's uh, it's hard to make time. Every time we release the fish, I'll call down our our local representatives and some of our state representatives and people from the Washington State Department of Fish and Wildlife and all the people that gave us the money for the program and sponsored, I'll say, hey, come on down. We're releasing our fish on April 1st. And it usually ends up being a really big turnout. Um, and it's, it's really neat to see, you know, everyone working together. You'll have your students down there working next to guys from Riverence. Guys next to them will be from Cook Aquaculture. And then you'll have the Shayless tribe bringing around their boat. And then you'll have some state employees running around there, you know, working on stuff too. So it's just, it's a really unique experience to see so many agencies come together for, in a sense, such a small project, you know, considering the numbers that the state releases. Um, but it's it's pretty special to to see that.
1: Yeah, for sure. And it sounds like it's such a unifying event or a unifying program to have. You know, in that article that I read, you had. Um, state representatives and tribal leaders, alliance leaders. What kind of feedback are you getting from these guys? And how important is that kind of support from these local leaders to the success of your program and the longevity of your program?
0: I think it's been really good. Um, I think it's been a really positive experience. Um, I also want to use discernment and make sure that I don't, you know, speak out of place for for what the tribe feels or what the state feels, because sometimes Absolutely. it's challenging for for the state to work with the tribe. Um, they have different goals. They have to agree upon a, you know, a memo of understanding. But I think this program has has really been a good catalyst to have them work together. I'm like, hey guys, I wanna I wanna raise all thirty five thousand steelhead to smolts. You know, not five thousand. Well, all of a sudden, the, the tribe and the state have to get together and mutually agree that that is a good idea. So kind of everything we've done, since they are my co-managers, the the state and the tribes, it's kind of forced them a little bit more to work together. And everyone wants to see the program being successful since it's leading to education. So I think it's just really given that push to to mutually agree upon something and just kind of really kindle those, those good working relationships.
1: Yeah, for sure. And I guess the big question for you, Kevin, is how do we replicate this program in other high schools? How do we get other states and other organizations to get behind something like your aquaculture program over there?
0: It's a challenge. You need people to teach that understand the basics of fish culture. The school systems have to be able to pay enough to recruit someone from the fisheries industry, to not only teach the class, but put up with hundreds of little hooligans every day. So that's one of the biggest battles. But as far as the infrastructure and the curriculum, I really think that part is quite simple. Generally, every city has a water department and a sewer department. And if I've I've asked some of our neighboring towns, I go, hey, What what would it be like if you were to donate, say, 30 gallons a minute, 24-7 to a school, and then after the fish soil, the water, take it back through your wastewater department? And they kind of laughed at me, and they said, Kevin, we lose more than that per day in leaks. So it would be nothing. So to me, that tells me that many agencies, city agencies, would be willing to sponsor a school with the water and the effluent um, problems. And to me, that's the biggest hurdle to get over is where do you get the water and where do you put it? So if they can have that set up, all they have to do is generate a very small partial reuse system that can go in the back of a classroom or, or right outside and set it up super simple with redundancy and raise a species that's super easy to raise like rainbow trout and just develop a curriculum. And I think a curriculum is a big thing because many teachers that may be able to, interested in this, a lot of FFA teachers, they have no experience with fish culture. So we have to create a curriculum and just create something that's easy, straightforward and simple an example would be the automotive class I taught. There was this gentleman in, I think, uh, Montana, that was a teacher, went mechanic, and then he created an online interactive curriculum. And I think if there was an online curriculum built for a high school, built for a one-year course that focused on the basics, I believe teachers would teach it because they're like, awesome. The curriculum is already created. All I have to do is follow it. And here's a perfect little turnkey system for $50,000 that will go in the corner of my shop or the back room or right outside that is virtually maintenance-free that will give the kids the hands-on lab experience. So I think it's doable. We just need someone to put the pieces together. Kevin, that's um, a really great thought.
2: I think, though, what's unique about Onalaska program is that it's not just a little system that sits in a corner. It's at a scale that is relevant. Um, You know, 18 foot diameter tanks, moving beds, um, uh, uh, solids filtration, Mm -hmm. and uh, you have those unit processes and they're not just these tiny little uh, systems, toy systems, what, what I'll say we've seen in the past. Sure, and, and those things are great for you know teaching some of the fundamentals, just the basic chemistry and the biology, but the, the husbandry aspect, the things you're talking about sampling and um, uh, observing uh, fish behavior uh, is a lot different, of course, in a small tank versus a, a quite uh, larger tank and, and seeing how fish uh, nip and, and compete in those tanks and, and all of those basic husbandry things are, I think, are critical at, mm-hmm. at, at the scale that you're doing them at and and i do and, and i mentioned earlier that uh, you know there are a couple uh, projects going on right now that are looking to develop um curriculum both high school and and maybe some basic courses at a earlier level to just interest uh, students in aquaculture and the growing aquaculture industry in the US and i would think that uh, folks could just come visit you and and talk with you uh, i'm sure that you don't, you know all the time in the world to do that, but to see what you're doing and, um, and maybe uh, build off of that. Is that not possible?
0: No, absolutely. I, I'd invite anyone to come out and take a look. I mean, it's, it's not mine. It's, it's the communities. It's the school. It's right. the taxpayers. It's, it's Transalta's warehouses. it's warehousers all the people I have donated to make this successful. Um, so yeah, it's open anytime, anytime that anyone wants to take a look. I do have a presentation that I think I've shared with you we can get that posted online too um that goes over it pretty thorough yeah working with the curriculum I I think that'd be good because it's very fluid it, it changes and there's so many different aspects of it from uh we're basically doing hatchery to harvest you know the whole the whole process yeah and, um, and, yeah. and Kevin and, and that's the part that I think is is uh, slightly different than you know
2: just having this $50,000 system in the corner Right. Although nothing costs fifty thousand dollars anymore in this industry, but I, you know, I, I think it does need to be something larger. You know, and and I know that uh, lots of folks have provided assistance to you, uh, technical yeah. assistance as you've you know developed your systems and uh, converted them from flow through to reuse. And um, I know, I, I guess I was one of those people, but Ryan Karcher uh, folks at Reverence, and, and and others have been helpful. I, I know you've mentioned that in the past, and. Um, I thank you for thanking me for that. All by the way, you're always very generous. Um, in in your thank in your thanks for the assistance, but um, you know, I would be willing to uh, to help work on, on um, something that might be a little bit larger than uh, you know, maybe a six foot tank in the corner, but uh, a model based on what you've done
0: uh, mm-hmm. that
2: could be part of something that could be replicated. Um, you know, I, I do think it, it's possible. And I I think your program is, is one step beyond what I've seen in the past. And, and I'm, I think it's really exciting, obviously that that's why we had you on, have you on the podcast today, uh, just because of all the great things you've done, uh, with the kids and, and, and speaking of those kids, do you have any feel for how many of them have gone on to, um, careers in aquaculture?
0: Yeah, I, I know there's been a couple. Um, but I don't really follow any students on social media. Um, so I, I really couldn't tell you once they leave high school there, they're, they're kind of gone, but there's, there's, to me, there's so much more than just the aquaculture side of it. You know, I have people working with the, uh, the electrical in there, um, people working with, uh, the grounds, you know, just keeping everything cleaned up. So there's a lot of different niches in there as, as well. But I wish I knew, I wish I could have some numbers to report, but uh, but I don't.
1: I mean, I wish I had a program like this in high school. I mean, not everybody learns well from tests and textbooks. So being part of a hands-on skill-based program like this can be really valuable to anybody, not just those to pursue aquaculture. Um, you mentioned earlier in the podcast how you incorporate quite a lot of different skills and different uh, subjects and fields of study in within this curriculum. So. Thank you, Kevin, for coming on to our podcast and sharing the great things that you're doing at Onalaska High School. We really appreciate you taking the time with us.
2: Yeah, thanks, Kevin. Thank
0: you.
1: Thanks for bringing him onto our podcast, Brian. It's a very fascinating program. I was wondering what you thought about what Kevin was talking about of Cook Aquaculture's involvement and I think he mentioned some other industry players and how important is, it is for the industry to support programs like this.
2: Yeah, he mentioned Cook and um, Riverance as a, mm, another industry supporter. Right. Um, and of course, the Washington Department of uh, Fish and Wildlife and in the local community who operated the hatchery there before they even started the program. Um, In in general, of course, these are super important programs for getting people exposed to aquaculture um, at at just a basic level. And um, and then that exposure, hoping to uh, interest students to pursue a career and maybe get trained in a program like Kevin's and then follow it on with. Uh, training in college for fisheries, or um, there's another program in Washington State at Bellingham uh, Community College, which has produced uh, many uh, hatchery operators over the years, very strong program, beautiful facilities uh, that were rebuilt in the last 20 years or so. Um, So I think what is happening there on Alaska is very important, and it's very important for the industry to be aware of that, uh, hopefully through this podcast, and find ways to support these programs that are exposing uh, people, uh, students at younger ages to aquaculture as a potential career path. And then um, enabling those programs through, as as Kevin mentioned, he's been fortunate enough to get donations of both equipment and kind and, uh, and uh, just, you know, cash donations to keep the program operating. Um, And even Cook has been able to enable that program through the purchase of special feed Um, that uh, has really worked out well for Kevin. So I do think it's important, um, again, that they, you know, be aware that they engage. And I think for the most part, um, you know, the farms out there, uh, the Atlantic Sapphires, the Superior Fresh, um, the Freshwater Institutes, uh, you know, um, those kind of operations are already, you know, working with a local uh, college or local university to have summer interns. I think the, the opportunity is for the vendors, uh, equipment vendors, uh, feed suppliers, to tune into this and uh, and try and um, find opportunities or structure opportunities to support these programs, um, and uh, and hopefully replicate them and and build them out so that we do have a workforce uh, that is passionate, engaged, and skillful um, to make these. Um, to make the expansion in, in land-based aquaculture work.
1: As always, we have show notes with links to articles, photos, and more extras that can be found on our website, rastechmagazine.com podcast. That's R-A-S-T-E-C-H magazine.com podcast. And there's a lot of extras that this episode will carry. So hopefully you can all check it out over there. Um, if you want to support us, please consider sharing this episode with your network and on social media. I don't usually ask for this, but uh, send us some feedback about our episodes. Let us know what topics or which people you'd want us to bring onto the show. We'd love to hear from you and follow us on your favorite podcast platform so you don't miss a new episode. We of course want to thank our sponsor, OxyGuard International. Secure, grow, evolve. Improve your production with tailored and targeted technology. Thanks for listening.